the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight in the program, we're talking about foods that may increase depression and anxiety. Also, a mocktail to help you sleep, hip replacements, and how to be the sexiest version of you. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. So, I talk a lot about this, diet and nutrition. I don't even like to use the word diet. I prefer the word nutrition. But, um, you know, what is your nutrition like? And is it tied? Do you feel like it's tied to how you feel? And do you also go for those carbs when you're feeling kind of down? Or do you notice that if you eat lots of vegetables in a day and stay away from the sugars, stay away from fried foods maybe, that you feel a little bit better? Do you sleep a little bit better? Is your mood a little bit better? Do people say you're easier to live with? Try it sometime. It's it's definitely, we're seeing evidence that good nutrition is related to how you feel and how you sleep. There has been a significant recent rise in depression and anxiety worldwide with 2020 seeing an increase of 27% and 25.6% respectively. That is statistically significant. According to the World Health Organization, more than 5% of adults suffer from from depression globally. And this is a problem. This is a major medical problem. It it impacts people's jobs, their personal lives, their professional lives, their relationships, how they feel about themselves. It can can impact a person's weight. So it's, it's pretty important that that we look at this and and pay attention to this. I, I get lots of emails when I bring up this subject from people who have like, you know, the one shot pony, they have one um, thing that actually helps them. Um, they feel, you know, they've made, they have one particular drink or one particular, um, you know, diet, you know, fish they might add into their diet. And um, so it's important that we look at um, at food as part of it, not only just food, but exercise and, and sleep and, and alcohol consumption also can play a role in your mood and, and whether you suffer from, an anxi- from anxiety and depression and even anxiety disorders. Lots of people smoke pot and, you know, realize that that might be impacting their anxiety, that they also have anxiety. They're actually using it to self-medicate. But people don't just use those substances like alcohol and marijuana and other drugs to self-medicate. They oftentimes use food. Sometimes it's French fries, (laughs) of all things. They're greasy, they're starchy, and they certainly are a comfort food for many. I have to say, I'm not a big French fries fan, but I cannot turn down a hot order of McDonald's fries. They are my favorite. I mean, there's just something about them. But reaching for fried foods, not just French fries, but fried foods may have a negative impact on your mental health. That was determined by a research team in Hangzhou, China. They found that frequent consumption of fried foods, especially fried potatoes, was linked with a 12% higher risk of anxiety and a 7% higher risk of depression than in people who didn't eat fried foods. Now we could take a look at this and say, well, it could be that people with anxiety and depression 
reach for the fried foods a bit more because they are seeking pleasure. They're seeking comfort. I, I did want to mention that the the link to depression and anxiety was more pronounced among, amongst young men and younger consumers, but are younger consumers reaching for French fries a little bit more? Are we feeding the kids French fries because they'll eat them and we figure they're potatoes? Fried foods are definitely uh, at, will increase your risk for obesity, high blood pressure, and other health effects. And so, you know, it, it begs the question, do we reduce fried food consumption to improve our mental health? And that was the question that was asked in the journal PNAS that was published this week. But these results are preliminary. As with a lot of studies, we definitely need more research because it's not necessarily clear whether the fried foods drove the mental health issues, or as I said, people who are experiencing symptoms of depression or anxiety actually chose fried foods as opposed to the healthy foods. You know, the funny thing is, is that, you know, you, you don't feel great, for whatever reason, you need a comfort food. We've all been there. You know, we're going to go for the fried foods. We're going to go for the carbs. We're not going to go for the broccoli, the steamed vegetables. No, that just doesn't give us comfort. But interestingly enough, it does make you feel better if you consume those foods. This particular study evaluated 140,000 people over 11 years. They excluded participants diagnosed with depression within the first two years, a total of 8,294 cases of anxiety and 12,735 cases of depression were found in those that consumed fried food, while specifically fried potatoes were found to have a 2% increase in the risk of depression over fried white meat. And the study also found that the participants consuming more than one serving of fried food regularly were more likely to be younger men. The, the higher intake of fried food may increase the risk of anxiety and depression. It may or may not. Um, and so the study may actually indicate just what it purports, but we could, as I said, look at the other way. Those people who have anxiety and depression turn to that comfort food with increasing frequency because they're seeking relief from their mental health symptoms. And we self-medicate in so many ways. We shop, we eat, we drink, we do drugs in order to feel better. But at the end of the day, we don't feel better at all. And in fact, over time, people feel much worse. Their moods can become lower and a mental health condition can deteriorate. And we've seen this in other studies as well. The, the reason for this uh, increase in depression and anxiety may be tied to, according to this research, may be tied to acrylamide, which is a chemical formed during the frying process, especially in fried potatoes. And that could be at the carry-on of the higher risk for anxiety and depression. And so long-term exposure to this can actually increase um, anxiety and depression. And this was found to be in zebrafish as well. Zebrafish typically, um, you know, they typically stay together with other fish, but when, when there was an increase in acrylamide to these fish, given to these fish, um, the fish actually stayed in darker places within tanks and were away from 
the other fish. It's very preliminary, but there could be a connection between fried food and acrylamide. So the health effects of the fried food depends on the type of food that is fried and also the type of fat that you're using as well. Potatoes are particularly concerning because they can cause large surges in your blood sugar and then you have hormonal responses to these surges. But the, the surges can be blunted partly by fat, which would be provided by the fat from the frying. So there's a lot to be considered here, but it's just something to think about. But I think just in a larger perspective, look at your entire nutritional plan. Look at what you eat. It, you really, it's very important that you take care of your body and consume healthy foods make the healthier choices. It's a bit of a sacrifice at the beginning, early on when you make changes to your diet, but educate yourself, read up on it. What are healthy foods? What are not healthy foods? I always remember the patient who said, cheese is just as good as broccoli, right? <laughs> no. Um, and so, you know, you can have a cube of cheese a day. <laughs> There's healthy amounts of food. You can have all the broccoli that you want. Fruits and vegetables are so good for you and actually make you feel better and help your blood vessels to feel better. They'll lower your blood pressure. They'll help you to live a longer life with a better quality of life. And this is very important, especially since anxiety and depression are on the rise globally. I don't know where you go for your information, but you know, occasionally I go to TikTok. I don't really, but I did see this on TikTok and I thought it was kind of interesting. Um, a, you know, so many people have sleep problems, whether they have problems because of chronic pain, difficulty sleeping through the night or anxiety and depression. They may have difficulty falling to sleep. They may have difficulty staying asleep. People have difficulty waking up in the morning, um, waking up too early. And then sometimes people can sleep in too much because they haven't gotten any sleep in the middle of the night. Anyway, I think it's probably one of the worst things is to have sleep issues because it would be very difficult to be productive during the day. So uh, TikTok or some of the influencers on TikTok are recommending the sleepy girl mocktail. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of people try different over-the-counter medications. And one that's incredibly popular is melatonin. I think melatonin is fine for a few nights if you want to try that. The um, up to 10 milligrams is the recommended dose. But a lot of people feel hung over the next day. Some people get a metal taste in their mouth. It doesn't work for other people. And I just don't like taking a hormone, actually, over the long term uh, to sleep. But this new Sleepy Girl mocktail is exactly what it says. Um, so it's not actually a cocktail. A lot of people will try alcohol, have a couple of drinks to help put them to sleep. Not the healthiest version of you. Um, in fact, when you go to sleep at night, the cerebrospinal fluid bathes your brain. And so if it is, and uh, alcohol is absorbed in your cerebrospinal fluid. So if you are bathing your brain with alcohol, that is not a good thing. And it's going to increase your risk of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. It's going to decrease your quality of life as you age. You want to cut down on your risk of Alzheimer's disease, get good sleep and do not use alcohol to fall asleep. And in fact, cut down on your alcohol, go to what Canada, the Can Canadian guidelines recommend no alcohol. Okay. So getting back to the sleepy girl mocktail, it is a lip puckering concoction of tart cherry juice, magnesium powder, 
Uh, and one recipe, because there's different variations on the theme, is um, is a prebiotic soda, or you can use um, Perrier water or any any type of bubbly like that. Um, the magnesium will relax you. It will also help to keep you regular as well. Um, but the cherry juice, the tart cherry juice, is apparently um, linked to better sleep, and that's the that is the magic potion or the magic part of the potion is that tart cherry juice because it has high concentrations of melatonin and tryptophan. Tryptophan is an essential amino acid and that is involved in the formation of the hormone that enables restful sleep. That's We also find that in turkey as well and that's why a lot of people have a great sleep a couple of times a year after a turkey dinner, after a giant turkey dinner. I think also there could be, I mean, there this could actually work. This may be beneficial, but there's also a very good chance that you get the, you benefit from the placebo effect of this. And so there's a 30% placebo effect with, with placebo effect with anything that you try, but tart cherries have been studied for years because they have benefits for muscle recovery and also sleep. And I, and I do think the magnesium might help to relax you as well. Tart cherries contain several antioxidants and polyphenols that provide antioxidant and inflammation response benefits. And so this could be um, something that you might want to try. Um, and, you know, I think it could be part of your sleep hygiene and, and routine. And, uh, you know, there's other aspects of sleep hygiene that are important as well. Go to the same, go to bed the same time every night. Don't have a television or a computer in your bed. Do not go to bed with your phone. Go to bed with your partner at the same time uh, each night. Um, but, uh, you know, this this cocktail might be part of that as well before you brush your teeth. And, um, you know, adding that magnesium as, as part of it is important because that can promote rest. It can calm the mind and it is better absorbed by the blood brain barrier. But before you add any type of magnesium, you do want to speak to your doctor about the exact type. Try not to take advice from TikTok influencers. Um, I just thought this was kind of a fun, a fun way um, to think about and, and, and fairly safe with tart cherry juice and Perrier water and some form of magnesium that would be helpful. But it's just important to have a, a good nighttime routine, signal to your brain that it's time to wind down. If you need darkness, it's, it's a good thing to get blackout blinds in your bedroom. Um, I know that in our bedroom, we have a Southwest exposure and the sun just pours in until 11 o'clock at night in the summer. So blackout blinds are a must. Um, and anyway, have good sleep hygiene and routine and you'll have a better day the next day. I am the artist of my own story. I create it now as the elder I have become and as the ageless child I carry within, who constantly breaks through boundaries to view life with the wide-eyed amazement that makes my world appear extraordinary. That is the introduction to the fabulous book called Luminous, An Artist Story as a Guide to Radical Creativity. And the author, Linda Diane Freimer, joins me on the line. Linda is a finalist for an award with forward reviews in the category of art nonfiction. Good evening, Linda. Good evening, Maureen. Thank you for joining me on the show this evening. So nice to be with you. 
Lovely to be with you. And it's such a gorgeous book. I really don't even know how to describe it. It is a bounty of beautiful artwork and incredible prose and poetry and stories and healing. And I mean, it's just so amazing. And you are so generous as to um, give one out to our listeners this evening. So if you would like to be the winner, the recipient of this book, Luminous, the number to call is one 877 399 And um, we'll take the 11th caller. Um, Linda, Tell me about this book. What is the main message of your book? I think um, for me, the main message is that in a world so often divided and in need of healing, creativity is a uniting force and that each of us is an artist. We are the artists of our own stories and our stories have the ability as we create them through our lives to affect the fundamental changes necessary to healing and unifying our families, communities, and all of life on earth. This isn't just my vision. It's been the vision of artists throughout history. And um, I think that um, it's attainable when we take down barriers and share reverence together. Uh, We can make magic happen. And and it's really you know, how to make our own lives be magical as well when we're the artists of our own stories and we realize that we have the power to, to create that. What inspired you to create this book and, and how long did it take you? <laughs> I mean, oh, this gosh. is a tomb. <laughs> this is a lifetime's work. <laughs> I worked on the book for 25 years and I often wanted to put it away, but it just kept... Um, rebounding in my consciousness and I just couldn't leave it. I knew that there was something from the experiences I'd had with so many profound people, so many people who'd endured cultural oppression or who had health issues and um, had benefited from art and from creativity. And I just couldn't stop. I just knew that I had to keep going. And I love learning. I love researching and I love sharing. And I want so much to play my small part in and healing what I can on this earth. So I just couldn't stop working on it. And I'm grateful that I was able to complete it just this year. It's just, it's just amazing. And also congratulations to you on being a finalist for an award with forward reviews in the category of art and nonfiction. That is amazing. And it's nice to have Mm. your work recognized like that. So, so tell me, um, I know that there are art therapists and people find uh, that art is a creative outlet for them. Oftentimes when people retire, they pick up art and they realize a talent that they never did before. Do art and creativity have the ability to heal? And, and if so, how, how is that? Well, first of all, I wanted to say that I really do mean it, that everyone is an artist. It's the way we envision our pathway and then create it through life uh, that makes our life story into art. And I don't. I think there's been an emphasis as we become adults for um, art to appear, to be refined or finished or a certain way. But I felt myself as a child that I was like an abstract expressionist who wants to um, tell their feelings directly and... Um, 
with as much um, innocence and um, purity of vision, and yet very children have such a power in their art because it's so honest and genuine. And so I think if we can keep hold on to that child's vision throughout our whole lives, it's not how it appears that matters, it's how it feels and what it's able to say that makes all the difference to our healing and to our honoring mm-hmm. of others as well. And now I'm I'm being completely honest here. I have no artistic ability whatsoever. You you say everyone is an artist. <laughs> I am not with paint and yeah. paper or canvas and acrylics or anything. Zero. No, it, I I can't even paint a block color. Okay, <laughs> I'm yeah, trying. Can I ask you, do you have a favorite <laughs> color? Because um, um, I think ha- starting with a favorite color is a good way. Okay. And, and, um, I mean, I, you know, I probably had favorite colors throughout my life. Um, Mm -hmm. maybe, you know, I'm kind of liking pale pink at the moment. Um, I do love white (laughs) and I've loved blue, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. green at different times. So I do, uh, gravitate towards kind of the pinks and greens and, and blue colors very similar to the cover of your book, Luminous. And if you would like to win the book, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. Give me a call. We're going to take the 11th caller. I I wanted to say that um, my favorite color throughout for many years has been turquoise, but I also love the colors that you're relating and connecting to. And so um, through an intimate study in the book of colors, shapes, and symbols, um, we um, are able to respond to um, meaning, to find, um, they ground us in meaning, our symbols, and finding them for ourselves is a creative act. And so um, when you're out in the world, anyone out in the world, looking at co- for colors that they're connected to, that, that also gives them that sense of grounding and connection. And connection is what it's all about, not only with colors and shapes, and, and finding our symbols, but with others, with people who, with their own unique, unique symbols as well. So it's my, I think my book seeks to light the way to one's creative core. And it's at this creative core that fundamental seeing and then change can occur. Uh-huh. Um, you mentioned another favorite color of mine. Well, I, I would call it Tiffany blue. Um, but, uh, just another color, but I love, I love that. And so, I mean, we, everybody loves art. I mean, who, who doesn't, you know, it's so beautiful to look at. It's visually pleasing. It can give us a sense of calm. Um, why is it important that people incorporate art into their lives? Um, I think because it's a universal language. By incorporating Uh art into our personal lives, we're connecting to other lives anywhere in the world. And it's Uh these connections that heal the life that is our story. And and also it enables us to share empathy with others from other cultures and and to take down barriers, the barriers that can aid in understanding and sharing reverence again for the earth and for our cultures. And um, it's our responsibility 
to safeguard and to foster our intimate uh-huh. relationships between nature and culture and each other. And so art can lead us to this, um, this universal understanding, this universal language. But art also does something even more that um, I became profoundly aware of as a little girl um, living in Wells, a wilderness town in the central interior of British Columbia, because I was able to wander into the forest behind home. And I think that's where I first discovered wonder. And uh-huh. that's another place that is a, is a universal place of meeting in wonder, because just one moment before a, an awesome sunset or an incredible forest tree, we suddenly are breathless. And in that moment of breathlessness and awe, there's no prejudice, there's no separation, there's no segregation, there's no attitude. It's just Uh this moment of unity that we all experience. And so art leads us to wonder. And and that wonder creates reverence for all of life's forms. I think that's... Uh What's most central in my life is experiencing that and creating through colors and forms my own sense of wonder and awe Uh of this creation. Linda, so we have a very lucky listener out there who has won your book. And thank you, Linda, for the generous offer of sharing one of your books with one of our listeners. It's my honor. And um, that's lovely, March. Thank you for calling in. Yes, and uh, apparently there have been many, many uh, call callers in who wanted to win this. Um, so the book has been won. But if you have any other questions or any other thoughts, the number to call one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. I will say that this book is a, a fabulous gift uh, if you're thinking about Mother's Day or somebody's birthday. The book is available at Indigo on Granville in Vancouver and Indigo on Robson in Vancouver and Indigo stores across the country, as well as Hager's, Black Bond Books, Book Warehouse, Kits Learning Studios, and the Zach Gallery at the Jewish Community Center of Greater Vancouver. And it's also on Amazon as well. It's at Mosaic Books in Kelowna, British Columbia as well. So I would, it's a beautiful gift. You know, this is the gift for the person who has everything because they definitely don't have this, but it's beautiful with its stories uh, intertwined within the the gorgeous artwork. Um, So we're talking with Linda about art and creativity, the ability to heal. Um, But a lot of this is predicated on her early life in the wilderness town of Wells. So Linda, how did that shape you as an artist and how does nature shape the art of our story? Well, um, I was born, my story begins in the small mining town of Wells. It's in the Caribou region um, of British Columbia. My father was a dreamer. My grandfather was a dreamer before him, and they were pioneers and adventurers. And I, the story, their story is in my book. Um, I'd love to hear other people's stories as well because it, it does really, hearing each other's stories does really take down the barriers and create so much reverence and empathy for each other. So I remember, uh, I go back to Wells Off, and I was there for the 50th anniversary and the 75th anniversary, and I had art shows in the community hall with, and got to really know um, many of the people who support and keep the town alive. But 
my heart is in Wales. When I go back, I think of my father. I think of his little store that he had, a dry goods store, and how he brought my mother there just after the Second World War. And I was their first baby born in Wales. And we lived above my father's store in a little, in rooms above the store. And I remember um, charting the room, uh, the four corners of the room, and then realizing that home just wasn't inside this, these rooms upstairs, but home existed outside in the wilderness so vast that it seemed to spread over the edge of the world and into forever. And I only lived in Wells my first few formative years, but they affected me these years profoundly. I remember looking out the window and seeing the green woods behind home and uh, just closing my eyes and using my imagination. And suddenly they transformed to colors that um, were turquoise, my favorite, baby blue, buttercup yellow, fuchsia peach blossom, and soft pink, and of course other illuminating hues. Color from my beginning was enabling big emotions, and also the baby steps that led me out the door and back into wonder. So being in awe, as I was saying, is a healing action. In that breathless moment of experiencing multicolored trees or that glorious sunset, or even the miracle of your own body. There's no separation then between anything and no judgment. And so that's how wilderness heals. That's how nature heals me. Just experiencing awe is a healing act. Uh-huh. Um, uh, in, in your book, you have a, a paragraph that you've written, uh, or Pascal Mercier, we leave something of ourselves behind when we leave a place. We stay there even though we go away. And there are things in us that we can find again only go by, only by going back there. I find that when I go back to, which I go back to every year, um, where I spent summers as a child in the state of Maine. And I, I, that resonated so much with me. Mm. What did you mean by that? That's so beautiful. What you're Mm -hmm. saying is so beautiful and so meaningful. And it, it does go to the core of what I'm trying to say. I thought that was a beautiful quote. Um, A very touching quote, because I feel like sometimes I feel that Wells calls me. I, um, I'm, I remember the last time I went back, I had this urgency to interview the pioneers that were still there that might have known my father and my mother and um, to meet them and learn more of their stories. So I convinced my son um, and my young daughter to go with me and we flew up to Prince George and rented a four-wheel drive vehicle and drove into Wells. And right away, I was out the door looking for pioneers and I learned I was one. <laughs> I was uh-huh. an elder now, and there weren't many pioneers left, but um, I did find a few, and I, I did learn more of their stories. And going home, I call it home still, because I just feel that when I um, round the curve of that last little, um, the road, the last curve into Wells, that my heart starts racing, and I feel like I like this multicolored wildflowers being given birth. Uh, it's just a sense of 
of childhood joy and the light in Wells, just experiencing that light where I've first even picked up crayons. And I, I suggest that adults pick up crayons again, return to that sense of childhood awe when you first experienced and explored color. But just returning home to your, you know, where you first, I think, experienced the awe of creation um, is magical and amazing. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It certainly is. And, you know, I have to say, when I go back to this area of Maine, I, I can honestly say, like, my siblings don't feel the same as me. Some of them are like, eh, I could take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful area. It's lakes and pine trees and it, seaplanes and it's it's gorgeous. And I just, mm-hmm. there's just something that I love about being there. And yes, the nature aspect of it as well. Um, I do want to mention that you are appearing at the Vancouver Public Library's downtown branch on Tuesday, May 2nd at 6.30 as part of the VPL's Writer Showcase. And this will kick off a mini tour of British Columbia, which will include a stop in Kelowna on Sunday, May 7th for a PowerPoint presentation and workshop at the Kelowna Golf and Country Club. It's an opportunity for folks, if you want to join Linda there, to spend the day with Linda at the Kelowna Golf and Country Club. And you'll be ending your mini tour of British Columbia in Nelson at the Nelson Museum on Tuesday, May 9th at 7 p.m. Linda, best of luck to you. Thank you so much for joining me on the program. Best of luck to you with the forward um, with the award, with the forward reviews in the category of art and nonfiction, and um, best of luck to you on your mini tour. Hopefully, from the response of the Canadians that have called in tonight, <laughs> um, hopefully you'll be going across the country on um, a bit of a tour <clears throat> as well. Thank you so much, Maureen. I appreciate you're, and value you so much. Uh, now we're going to get over to my hip and happening thing. Um, I saw (laughs) hip and happening subject, um, hippie, you might need hoppy if this happens to you. Um, I saw an article recently and it said that, and it was in the U S I spent some time in the U S cause I am American and I'm kind of getting to know the, the healthcare system through other people. I've only actually known it through my own family, which is rather large. It's probably 75 people in my family and extended family. And, and so, but I would say that everybody has health insurance and that's an important aspect of being in the U S. Um, but I've had the occasion to meet people without health insurance and life is very different for them. And, and so I'm, I'm seeing it through a very different lens and health care in the U S is, is a big business. And it's made me appreciate Canadian healthcare a whole lot more than, than I ever did before, because I'm amazed at meeting people who have not been to a doctor in five years because they couldn't afford it. These are people who make good money. These are not people who are unemployed or low salaried people. These are people who don't want to spend $500 on a doctor's visit. Or, um, I, I know somebody who actually did not take a particular cardiac medication and then they ended, I, I don't know if it was the reason because it was too expensive. But I don't know if that was the reason, but they ended up dying, actually. They ended up having another heart attack because they felt one of the medications prescribed. They had other uh, lifestyle issues as well that contributed to cardiac disease and, and likely to the cardiac event that ended their life. But, but it's quite different. But I saw this article and I thought, man, if that isn't the epitome of big business, healthcare as big business, which it is in the U.S., if not already, is fast becoming. Um, it said... 
that people in their 40s and 50s should consider having hip replacements. And I wondered, is that because they've replaced all the hips of the 60 and 70 year olds? Anyway, joining me on the line to talk about hip replacements is Dr. Tomi Mitchell. She's a medical doctor in wellness and performance, and she empowers people so that they can reduce burnout and overwhelm to increase productivity in their lives and in the workplace. And there's nobody better to talk about this subject than Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. How are you? Good evening, Maureen. I'm great. Oh, good. I don't know if I'm fine. Thank you. I don't know if you know, although I have to say I did take a killer nap today. (laughs) So I feel amazing. (laughs) A lot of people, if they take a nap, they won't sleep at night. But if I take a nap, I'm looking forward to it even better yeah. sleep tonight. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, knock on wood, sleep is not my problem. I can sleep anywhere. I was flying recently and I fell asleep before they, usually I start falling asleep as they back the plane up. I started falling. I fell asleep before they even closed the door. Anyway. Um, so I, I want to talk to you about hip replacement surgery. I've had a number of patients in my clinical practice recently who have uh, who are in need of a hip replacement or they're in need of other joint replacements as well. But today I want to focus on, on the hip replacement surgery. And we typically see that happening, uh, in people in, you know, in the, in the sixties kind of thing. So I, I don't know if you were listening, I was struck by this article that I read in the New York times about, you know, people should consider having a hip replacement at forties and fifties, yeah. you know, I mean, hip replacements typically last 20, 30 years, but it's like, are they just looking for more business? I mean, if you don't need one and, and you're probably going to outlive your hip replacement, and, but then there's the other side of that. I mean, typically uh, what I've seen is people are in significant pain um, prior to getting their surgery in part because they have to wait a little bit of time here in Canada. Um, but I don't know what, what are your thoughts on, on when somebody should have a hip replacement? Well, ideally after 60, Oh, that again, it's an individual case. If someone has extreme debilitating rheumatoid where their joints are destroyed, they can't function, they can't work, like then obviously that person will probably be a great candidate. But like you said, the hip replacement, even as far as, even with our current advancements, 20 to 30 years is a good um, amount of time for that hip to last. So Mm -hmm. ideally you don't want to do the surgery twice, so you do it later in life. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people, as you mentioned, there's going to be the odd person, the outliers who have debilitating pain, who may have osteo at a younger age, osteoarthritis, and, and are in need of, of a hip replacement. But I, I just got this sense that the healthcare systems in the U.S., the you know the private equity firms, if you will, it's backing a lot of these healthcare systems, nursing yeah. homes for sure. Um, they are procuring patients. <laughs> you know, they are and. And it's big money, you know, it, it's $60,000 to have a hip replacement um, in the U.S., you know, so, and a lot of times, you know, it's the insurance that, that covers that if people have insurance, you know. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's something I hear out of my parents' mouths. They're just like, you know, the doctor has ordered this. That's because I I have good insurance. <laughs> I'm not getting it. They They just want the insurance money, you know, and it's, you know, you just have to wonder and you have to really really take care of yourself. But anyway, around 60 or after the age of 60 is, is kind of the typical time for somebody to have a hip replacement. Um, is, 
a lot of people will be, as they're waiting for hip replacement surgery, they're experiencing a significant amount of pain. Um, what is the recommendation in terms of uh, treatment for the pain as they await um, surgery? We actually recommend like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, so like a leave, naproxen, um, physical therapy, so you can strengthen the muscle that supports your hip. Um, sometimes we do opioids, but we really limit that. It's really NSAIDs. It's safe. It's not addictive. And therapy. Mm -hmm. And then also the piece that's oftentimes a really hard one to um, overcome is the weight. Ideally, you want to be a healthy weight. The less weight you put on that joint, whether it's knee or hip, the better. And then also quit smoking. So it's a one... We try to do as many things as possible, and we understand the pain can be significant. And then also there's things we do like injections, um, whether for the knees, it's like um, we inject medications to help um, soften the cushions, the hips. Sometimes radiologists do techniques to help you. Uh, there are procedures that even um, make it difficult for you to sense pain, but again, it only lasts maybe a year or two and not really widely accessible in Canada. So that's oh. really what we do. Yeah, that's really what we do. Mm -hmm. right now. Um, so the cortisone injections for the for the hips um, is yeah. and it can be beneficial for the pain. Yeah, definitely. And so they don't prescribe opioids for hip pain preoperatively. No, we really try to avoid it, frankly. And, um, definitely. And is that for the fear of addiction? Yes, and I think that they've realized that it doesn't really have the pain reduction benefit that we used to think they did. Oh. So it's really, um, we really avoid it. Now, there's always cases that someone's had a bad hip for 20, 30 years, and that's what they've been on. But in mm -hmm. moving forward, we definitely try to avoid it. Mm -hmm. And do you think there's some benefit to anti-inflammatory diets, cutting out the sugar um, for people? I think so. I don't see any reason why a diet... Diet is food as medicine. So if you eat a healthier diet, now there's going to be talk about their studies to support it, but in general, a healthier diet will help you. So mm -hmm. I, can't, I can't think of a research study to support it off the top of my head, but nutrition is important. Mm -hmm. I can't believe we're almost to our time. Uh, <laughs> we're through the first segment already. I have so much I want to talk to you about uh, hip replacements, like what is considered a normal amount of pain after mm. hip replacement surgery, and how long does it take to recover for somebody out there who's facing uh, hip replacement right now? How long can they expect for it, um, you know, for them to recover after that hip replacement? So, what are your thoughts on that? Quickly before we go to break. Honestly, pain post-op varies per person and tolerance, maybe four to six, but honestly, it should be down to one to two in a few weeks. Again, it depends on the shape of the patient, the conditions, and other factors, but we should be up and going, maybe not fully, depending on the hip that you got replaced, within a few weeks. But um, Up and moving about. Moving around. We don't like, before we used to say lay in bed, sit around, but that we realize that's bad. It causes clots and our, our joints become stiffer. So we really try to encourage movement with Right. Therapy. Good to know. That's very important. Yeah. yeah. 
talking with Dr. Tommy Mitchell. We're talking about hip replacements. Many people have those. Probably 80,000 people in Canada a year have a hip replacement, and about 60 have knee replacements. 60,000 have knee replacements. Physical therapy is um, uh, one of the treatments to help to get you back to your normal life post-operatively. And that's whether you're going to go back to work or playing with your kids or playing your favorite sport or doing your favorite hobby. But um, it does take different times for you to get back to your life. So Dr. Tomi, after somebody's had uh, surgery, for example, on, on their hip, say they had it on their right hip, how long would it take them to get back to driving again? It could be six to eight weeks because we kind of need it for, um, you know, braking and pressing the gas. So ideally, uh-huh. it's a lot easier to drive with if a left hip replacement. It's much faster if you have a yeah, left hip. Exactly. I, I, yeah. I have to be honest. I feel like, I mean, I broke my leg one time and uh, I wasn't comfortable driving. for. It was my left leg, <laughs> but I wasn't comfortable driving for a long time, even though they said I could. I, I actually wasn't um, too comfortable. And I didn't, because I think it might increase the risk of, of accidents. Anyway, um, how about going back to work? I mentioned if you have a desk job, you probably can go back in, in two weeks, but you know, I know people who've taken upwards of three months off like nurses, for example. Oh, 100%. And also depends what else is going on with their health, right? It's not just the physical, it's the mental piece. Maybe there's other heart disease or other things that they have that makes going back to work a challenge. So yeah, a desk job, potentially a few weeks and others longer and i've seen longer than i've seen three six months and in rare cases some don't even return back because by the time they have the surgery other things have snowballed in their lives so Uh and how about sports when can people get back to playing golf for example golf you know i would say if it's a few weeks depends on the person but we don't want to be doing any sports that involve like jumping, like um, pivoting or putting a lot of weight. Not depends how you play golf, obviously. Mm-hmm. But you want to ease into things slowly. Um, movement mm-hmm. is good. Walking is good. But avoid putting too much weight on on your hips mm-hmm. initially. Yeah, because a lot of people um, with that require hip replacements, it's it's um, overuse injury, basically, the osteo is from, you know, they were yeah. big athletes to begin with. Yeah. And and I know that everybody out here there is wondering, when can you return to sexual activity <laughs> after as a hip as replacement? You're ready. <laughs> as soon as, as you're ready. ready. <laughs> okay, so that could be different. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that could be different depending if you are the which SMM end of the... and, yeah, that's what you're doing. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Given yeah. desired discrepancy between men and women, um, you know, some people could think, "Yay, what a break!" Anyway, and yeah. others could be dying to get back to it. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, so what are, what are some of the biggest risks? What what could slow down recovery? For example, infection is a big one. Um, any post-op complications like loosening joints, ligaments, um, psychological too. I, I that's often neglected. There is mm-hmm. often a sense of well, fear that you've gone through this major surgery that you're going to hurt yourself if you're moving. Um, access physical therapy is not covered. I, I don't know any problem. Well, the problems I've worked in, it's not covered or very limited. So to really get the proper rehab, it takes funds. 
And most people's $500 a year, you know, insurance with their work just doesn't cut it. So that's also right. a concern. Right. Um, I did have somebody email in saying, being obviously from the States, being a military retiree over the age of 65, my health care is completely free. In fact, my Medicare Advantage plan pays my Part B premium for me and gives me dental and vision coverage as well. Makes me feel like a Canadian, only better. <laughs> yes. Anyway, you're absolutely correct. A lot of these services and the devices, the assistive devices that are needed yeah. are not covered, like walkers and crutches and toilet seats, uh, elevator things and, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. you know, all sorts of things can be expensive. Those chairs are, you know, I imagine they're around a thousand dollars, the um, elevator chairs that the power oh, chairs, the power recliners. Yeah. yeah, the power recliners. Um, so, you know, a lot of people can't afford those anyway. Um, and you know, oftentimes people need two hips. They don't just need one and they mm -hmm. can't get two for the price of one all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. so how long should you wait, uh, after replacing one hip to replace the other? Uh, six to eight weeks typically, or if you're going to do it, you can do them both at the same time. But again, your surgeon will have to, you know, go over the pros and cons, but six to eight weeks typically between. Right, right. And that's, uh, actually to reduce the lower the risk of blood clots, which you mentioned earlier. So, um, yeah, it would not be easy to be facing two surgeries in a matter of a few months, but, um, yeah. but you, you got to do what you got to do. It's tough to live with that chronic pain. Dr. Mitchell, thank you so much once again for fabulous information, um, helping the listeners out there, those who are facing hip replacement surgery or, or have just had it really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Maureen. Have a good evening. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.